This episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast is presented by Sling. Using Sling, you can watch the upcoming CONCACAF Gold Cup, which is on FS1, and that channel is available on Sling. And we are about a month away from being able to watch the Women's World Cup, which is also available on Sling TV. That'll have the best teams competing against the United States to win the competition down under. Again, you can watch that tournament as well as the upcoming Gold Cup using Sling TV. Today I am joined yet again by Simon Evans, a reporter for the AFP who was in Las Vegas covering the CONCACAF Nations League, a competition that the United States won yet again, winning on Thursday over Mexico and on Sunday with a 2-0 win over Canada. So Simon, I just want to ask you, what was it like being there and what was your initial reaction or your reaction in general to watching the United States win the Nations League for the second competition in a row? Yeah, I think uh, I think the U.S. performance on on Thursday was uh, was excellent. I think it was one of the best uh, performances they've produced for for a good while. Um, Sunday's game, I was a little bit disappointed with Canada. To be honest, I was really expecting a, a really close, hard-fought game, and, and Canada seemed a little bit flat at the start, uh, which I was surprised about. And then as they gradually did come into the game in the second half, they just couldn't seem to find find their rhythm. Um, and the U.S. Uh, things worked, you know. I think uh, you know it was good to see Gio Reyna operating effectively behind like a, a pretty exciting front three there with uh, following Balogun scoring on his second game um, and looking pretty good as well. So with Pulisic in in, in good form, um, pretty positive uh, uh, mini tournament for the for the U.S. A worrying one for Canada, I think, with. Uh, John Herdman afterwards talking about the finances and he's not getting enough backing to be able to prepare the team properly. So that's certainly going to uh, be something to keep an eye on. But uh, And a disastrous tournament for Mexico. They looked uh, pretty awful in both games. They won the third place against Panama but didn't play anything like the level that we've seen from Mexican teams in uh, recent years. Simon, I want to ask you about the atmosphere at Allegiant Stadium because a lot of pictures emerged on social media that there was a lot of empty seats in this this very futuristic and very luxurious stadium. And I know the official attendance number that the stadium and U.S. Soccer announced was 35,000, but to be completely honest with you, for someone that was watching from their couch, it looked like a lot less than 35,000 fans were in attendance, and you harken back to the Mexico game, that was a, a sold-out venue, and obviously the Mexico-U.S. rivalry is always going to bring in a large number of fans, but this game against Canada in particular, it looked like there wasn't too many fans in attendance. What was the atmosphere like? Do you think that that number of 35,000 was was the accurate representation of what was at Allegiant Stadium? Um, no, it didn't really. Um, it didn't feel half full, put it that way. Um, I can't remember exactly what the capacity of that stadium is, but um, it's not more than 75. Right, yeah. For sure. And, um, and um, yeah, that might be tickets sold um, or some calculation based around that. It, it felt about um, a third full, the stadium, most of the time, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, really disappointing, really disappointing for a game where, you know, you have the, the home nation going for a title, even though, you know, we can say the Nations League is a new tournament. Um, actually, the national team coaches have treated the Nations League as, as more of a priority than the Gold Cup because of the way the schedule worked out and giving players a rest in the summer. Um, so it was always going to be, you know, head-to-head US-Mexico and then, and then uh, a good final. 
Um, I think the difficulty with it is it's a tricky one. Wherever you put a final four, you don't know what the final is going to be. Obviously, if you ended up with US-Mexico scenario as your final, which was impossible this time with the semi-final, obviously. But if in the future, if you have that chance of a US-Mexico, you, you can pretty much put a US-Mexico almost anywhere in the United States and you're going to get a good crowd. Um, other scenarios, it doesn't work quite the same, especially if Mexico aren't in there. And I, I thought the idea when I heard about it of taking the final four of the Nations League to Vegas sounds great. Everyone comes into Vegas, they get into the hotel, they have a good time, they go to the semifinals on Thursday, they go out on Friday night, right. and then yeah. you know, it all sounded perfect. But people didn't actually travel too much. There weren't really many American fans there. You know, there's not obviously a huge soccer fan base yet in Vegas of of people who are like MLS fans or supporting um, other the sport in other ways. Um, like you would find in, in many other cities in America now, and so it just didn't it just didn't work unfortunately, and, and it's a pity really that the final there you know the celebrations are taking place with so many uh, empty seats there. So I doubt that Concacaf will want to take it back to uh, to Vegas after that, um, and maybe they need to think about this final four format because it does make it tricky for the fans. Yes, I mean, you talk about how coaches, they've prioritized the Nations League, particularly compared to the Gold Cup, and you got to look no farther, or look no further than the squads for the two. I mean, the Nations League squad is their, pretty much their World Cup squad, you could argue, at least it could be their World Cup squad, and then the Gold Cup is very domestic-based, very MLS-heavy, and there are certain holdovers from the Nations League squad, you know, Matt Turner is one of those, but it is, in many ways, a kind of more... Not, I don't want to say worst lineup, but it is not their premier squad. BJ Callahan, I mean, this will be his last tournament coming up, the Gold Cup, and you look at his performance in the Nations League, and it's just his second games coaching. Uh, what do you make of uh, BJ Callahan? I know he won't be there by the end of this year because Greg Berhalter is coming back, and we'll touch on Berhalter in just a little bit, but what do you make of BJ Callahan's performances with the U.S. in his, his first two games in charge? Hugely impressed, I have to say, hugely impressed. And I think it's really interesting that, uh, and I actually put this to him last night, I said, you know, you've never been a head coach at any stage in your career, even with some of the small, smaller college uh, uh, women's programs that he worked out at the start of his career, he was always an assistant. And he will be around, I would imagine, as an assistant to Berhalter as well. He was part of that, that, that unit with Anthony Hudson. Um, I don't think uh, he's done done anything at all that will have discouraged Greg Berhalter from bringing him back so I would expect him to, to still be really involved with the team. I have to say they played well in both games and it does go to show for all the debates that there are about you know, who should be the national team coach, this guy should get it, this guy and people go and look at track records. Here is a guy who has a head coach, his track record was 0-0 zero for zero, right? and then you put him in and he beats Mexico 3-0 and Canada 2-0 Two clean sheets, five goals, wins a trophy. I mean, what are we talking about sometimes? <laughs> you know? And he's been, uh, I think he really does, uh, you know, he, t- he talked a lot about about the culture of the team and the method and, and really how, how everyone's bought into that and uh, clearly, you know, referring to Berhalter's reign as, as coach. And uh, I think he continued that. And I, if anything, you know, brought out more out of that team, uh, pretty attacking lineups. Um, you know, could you do the same against Holland? Probably you couldn't line up that way, but 
it was it was uh, it was really positive from Callan, and he spoke well. He spoke with enthusiasm. You get a real feel that he, he he's committed to that program and uh, and a real asset to it. I think a lot of B.J. Callahan's work this weekend was overshadowed by the news of Greg Berhalter. I want to ask you first off, Simon, what was your reaction when you heard that maybe on Thursday night when the news first broke from the Athletic, what was your first reaction to Berhalter receiving the job again after his six-month hiatus from the position? My first reaction, to be completely honest, was why is this news breaking in the middle of a match when I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to cover USA Mexico? Right, yeah. But... Um, you know, when you step back from it and think, okay, you know, the the signals over the last couple of days before that had seemed to be pointing in that direction, so it's not a massive shock. But then you look at the overall big picture and you think like, wow, six months, we've had two interim coaches in Anthony Hudson and BJ Callahan put in charge of the team. We've had, uh, we are led to believe a global search for the next head coach going on for six months, a new technical director come in and all this happens and we end up back where, where we started from with Greg Berhalter. Now, it doesn't mean it's the wrong decision, but it, it, you know, it's obviously been a, been a weird half a year for the US program, yeah. So Greg Berhalter coming back brought a lot of opinions on just about U.S. soccer, and one of those was, like you mentioned, this global search, this quote-unquote global search that U.S. soccer went through. They said they interviewed tons of different candidates, talked to all kinds of people, went through rigorous testing, rigorous, you know, asking them questions, all kinds of things that you would think would go into a job hunt, at least for the U.S. soccer trying to find a new head coach, and yet they land on Greg Berhalter, who was a polarizing guy in some respects for the U.S. soccer fan base. In your eyes, what does it say about U.S. soccer doing all of this and eventually landing on Greg Berhalter rather than trying something new, maybe looking uh, maybe outside the U.S. for this job? Yeah, I think I think the, they they uh, they're certainly in a comfort zone with Greg Berhalter. Um, I think the feder by they I mean the federation. Um, I think the federation likes having a head coach that they that they know that they understand that they have a relationship with. U.S. soccer is, you know, it's, it's a, a big, unwieldy, complicated beast at times with all the different, you know, the youth levels and uh, all the development stuff that goes on and so on. And I think uh, I think they feel comfortable with Berhalter. I do. Um, now, whether that's a good thing or not is is uh, is open to debate. But I think that is certainly one of the motivators. I think another thing was that, you know, um, the unpleasantness that went on at the end of the year with the Rayner family and everything and, and, and an incident from Berhalter's past being dragged up that we don't need to go into now. We all know what we're talking about. But I think the feeling was as well among some people in US soccer, some people that if you're gonna move on from Berhalter, you don't do it because somebody threw that grenade into the mix. You know, you don't do it and you don't allow in that sense the Rayners to win. Um, I think that was probably a factor for some people. Um, but, you know, Matt Crocker came out and said that he did this uh, very, very thorough search. Uh, and uh, in the end, uh, Berhalter was the best candidate in the world. Um, so, you know, again, we didn't find out who they talked to globally. Um, I did ask, you know, were you restricted to people who were not under contract and, and was told, no, we could talk to anyone we wanted. Um, the Federation also, uh, you know, JT Batson, the general secretary, is saying there was no restriction in terms of budget. They would pay what they needed to pay to get the best person for the job. Um, 
So, you know, these things all suggest that there was this massive uh, search for a coach that, that concluded that, that in, in Verhalter, which is a little bit of a head-scratcher, to be honest. I think uh, if they'd have turned around in December and said, you know what, we're, or in January, we know what, we're carrying on with Greg. He's making progress with the team. The team liked playing for him. Um, we're going to continue with this continuity candidate. Um, I don't think a lot of people would have been shocked by it. Um, but after six months in the, in, the, in the so-called global search, it is a bit of a head-scratcher. They talk about that six-month period. I know one of the questions in that introductory press conference for Berhalter was, do you think the U.S. wasted time? I mean, there was six months, like we just talked about, between, you know, just without a permanent head coach. So, in your opinion, did the U.S. waste time? Would it have made more sense just to hire Berhalter straight away and get things back on track? Or, I mean, we could speculate about the, the search all we want, but in, do you think that six months was truly wasted ahead of the 2026 World Cup, which we all know is a, a huge thing for the U.S. for U.S. soccer? I think it was six months wasted, but I don't think it's a big deal. I mean, I think, uh, you know, clearly nothing nothing has moved forward because there was a, were two interim coaches there who were just holding the fort, really. Uh, and in the case of uh, B.J. Callahan, for sure, holding the fort pretty impressively. Um, but they've just won the Nations League, so it didn't do them that harm. They just beat Mexico and Canada, so it's not like this, this six months that was wasted um, has really harmed the programme. So... You know, a bit, a bit of a weird uh, interruption in things. Um, a process that that needed to be resolved in some way, but yeah, why it took so long, I don't really, I don't really understand. These, this foreign coaches. I mean, like you said, we didn't get any ideas as to who U.S. Soccer actually interviewed, who they tried to bring in for the job. But we know that involved to some extent foreign coaches. I mean, the rumors were were all over the place. You had, you know. Pep Guardiola, Jose Mourinho, Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira, pretty much anybody that could have been a U.S. soccer head coach was rumored to be the U.S. soccer head coach. And you talk about Greg Berhalter as a safe choice for the squad. It's someone that the players are familiar with. It's someone that understands U.S. soccer's system. Is there any, or let me just phrase this question right, is there any missed opportunity that U.S. soccer could have had in going across the sea to try and get a head coach, someone that could have brought in World Cup experience, uh, European experience, because we see so many players in this top squad for the U.S. player, like the player base is based over in Europe. So was there any risk that U.S. soccer could have taken, in your opinion, to go and get someone that was uh, not familiar with U.S. soccer or the American soccer scene? It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I think there's a reluctance to do that, um, to be honest. That's just a feeling that I have, that after um, the Klinsman experience where, you know, I think he did a pretty good job until until close to the end, but there was obviously a lot of people um, stressed about having Klinsman in charge of the program, put it that way. You know, there was a lot of discomfort amongst people in, in US soccer and, and amongst some of the players as well and so on. Um, I, I think that maybe after that experience, they're a little bit reluctant to go down the foreign coach route. And, you know, there's sometimes people look at it and think, like, a foreign coach is going to be an instant remedy and he's going to improve things. It doesn't... You know, the record of foreign coaches with national teams overall, globally, isn't that great. I mean, there, you can point to a couple of examples of somebody coming in to a relatively modest program and, and achieve, overachieving with them. I would, I would say Gus Hiddink with South Korea in very unique circumstances where he was, 
he was basically given the team, uh, they basically closed out uh, those players out of domestic competition and put them into camp for like six months before the World Cup. Um, but he did a great job with South Korea and getting them to the semi-finals of the World Cup on home soil. And, uh, and then you had um, another example would probably be Otto Ragal, the German who took Greece to, to, the, to win the Euros in, in Euro 2004. Um, so, you know, those would be the two positive examples I could think of. Um, there probably are more that's not coming into mind now. But then there were also, you know, Fabio Capello with England was, did not go well, was not a good cultural fit, didn't speak the language, couldn't communicate with the players properly. Uh, Sven Goran Eriksson wasn't great with England either and was a disaster when he went to Mexico and other countries where he was seen as a little bit of a mercenary by people. Um, you know, Bertie Vogts at Scotland didn't go well at all. There's plenty of examples, you know, uh, the various Argentines that Mexico have had who they sacked like they sacked uh, one today as well. So, you know, it, there's no guarantee and, and, and I think it needs time as well. It needs somebody. I think if a foreign coach is going to come in, if you look at the example of Hiddink, you look at what Klinsman did over a period of time, uh, which included by the way, um, the first win at the Azteca in the history of the United States, 75 years without a winner in Mexico like that. And he did that, getting out of a group stage with uh, Portugal, Germany and Ghana, finishing above Ronaldo's Portugal in that group. That was a great achievement. So there were lots of positive things happened uh, with Klinsmann, but it took time. It took him to get control of the whole program. There isn't a lot of time before 2026. It feels a long way away, but it's not. You know, we're going to be soon into, you know, once this Gold Cup's out of the way, the next thing is coming up is the Cup of America. Is there going to be time to, for some foreign coach to come? If you were able to get somebody like Guardiola, is he able to install Pep Ball into this, in this, this group of players in time? I don't think so. And also national teams aren't club teams. You know, the coaches don't get that much time with the players. John Herdman was complaining about this the other day. He had like four or five days with his Canada team before the Nations League. So you don't get the opportunity to come in and really mold your football philosophy into a team, which I think a lot of foreign coaches, if they came in, would want to probably do that. Um, especially if you're talking about the top, top names, which I don't think were realistic candidates for budget reasons with, with US soccer. I don't think Guardiola, Klopp or anyone, I don't think they would necessarily want to do that job either <laughs> at this stage. But um, no, I mean, I think if they were looking somewhere, I mean, I think the ideal fit in a lot of ways for people who are looking for something a little bit different from Greg Berhalter would be, would be Jesse Marsh, you know, who's, who's American. Knows the players, knows some of them very well. Obviously, you know, he's worked with, you know, the likes of Tyler Adams and so on. Um, and had experience of the Bundesliga, the Premier League and the Champions League. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm thinking that, you know, at some stage, Jesse March is going to be the US head coach, you would think. Um, maybe this time there were, there, were, there were reasons they wanted to stick with Berhalter, continuity. Um, but I would think that Jesse Marsh of the, of the Americans has that kind of, can bring you that foreign experience without it being, uh, bringing those cultural problems that sometimes come with a foreign coach. Do you think U.S. soccer could make the case that hiring an American head coach could be a statement that their coaching philosophies that they are working on developing can work on a global scale at a World Cup, for example? Well, I think I think certainly the opposite is the true. I think I think when you I recall when England appointed uh, Ericsson and Capello, and there were definitely English managers and coaches who came out and said, 
if our own federation doesn't believe in English coaches, you know, what chance have we got with the clubs? And I think you can certainly, certainly, uh, that is a legitimate argument to turn around and say, one of US soccer's remits is to develop a pool of quality coaches across the country. That's part of its development uh, project. It's not just players, it's coaches. And if you turn around and say like, we need to bring some, we can't consider, uh, we can't hire somebody from the, the own pool of coaches that we have created, if you like, and developed, um, that's pretty, pretty, sends a pretty poor message to American coaches. So I can understand that mentality. I think, you know, you will always get federations will always say, we want the best person for the job. They're always going to say that. Every federation around the world will say, we're going to get the best person for the job. Um, but, you know, a lot of federations do go with their own nationalities for, for very good reasons. And at the end of the day, it, you know, the traditional view would be that these are national teams. They are the representatives of the game in that given country. And, you know, maybe it's not great for the game to have so many coaches uh, hopping around internationally. And like I say, the record isn't, isn't brilliant. One thing you mentioned earlier, Simon, it was the first reaction I had at, at Greg Berhalter's news, was the likes of Gio Reyna. There's people that have maybe not great relationships with Greg Berhalter, and we could talk about the likes of uh, Christian Pulisic, uh, Tim Weah, who, who have said great things about Greg Berhalter, not just as a relationship, but uh, his ability as a head coach. But these players like Gio Reyna or a Ricardo Pepe, who didn't get called up to the World Cup squad for 2022, I was surprised to hear that Burhalter hadn't reached out to them, especially someone like Ricardo Pepe, because it was just, you're not going to the World Cup. It wasn't anything personal like it was with, with Gio Reyna. How do you think Greg Burhalter is going to go about repairing those relationships? Because things seem pretty frosty between him and some of those players, in particular Gio Reyna, based on everything that happened uh, right after the World Cup. Yeah, it has to be resolved one way, doesn't it? I mean, it has, they have to sit down and have a chat about it and, and find some way of, of working together. I mean, I can't imagine what that conversation is going to be like. Um, there probably needs to be, uh, you know, a little bit of humility on both sides, really, doesn't there? But it's an extremely difficult one, what, what happened there with, with bringing up something um, from so far ago in the past and so unpleasant for somebody. Um, Wow, I mean that you know we're never ever going to get the fly on the wall documentary on Amazon <laughs> about that conversation. That's for sure. But you know, they, they they obviously need to sort that out. I think the Pepe one is an easier one. This happens. People get left out of World Cup squads. Pepe said all the right things when we asked him about it at the training camp, and he's like, "Hey, that's in the past now. I've got to go ahead um, and get my head down." And all the players coming out and saying good things about Berhalter, most of them absolutely sincere, but I'm sure in the case of, of, of some of the players who maybe didn't get a look in with Berhalter, they're going to say the right things, right? But, I mean, you know, you, you, no one comes out when the coach gets a new contract and says, oh, that's bad news. You know, you, you just can't do that. They're, effectively, it's your boss. Um, so, you know, I think I think the here has to have those conversations. There'll be other players as well who didn't get a look in who will want to feel that they're being considered and so on. Um, yeah, there's some patching up to be done all around there. There's still some things to be resolved and uh, and they have to be because you can't continue on uh, with like a bad feeling between Gio and uh, and Greg Berhalter. That, that has to be dealt with. Even if it's just a truce and patched up, something has to be talked about. So I'm going to wrap up with this. Uh, Greg Berhalter, he will be the head coach of the U.S., barring any 
major catastrophe for the uh, 2026 World Cup. Having had a World Cup under his belt and, you know, the expectation for so many coaches, or at least for the U.S., is to have success. I mean, we see how important home field advantage is at a World Cup. And you already mentioned John Herbman said uh, after the game, he said, well, a home World Cup, you're expected to get out of the group. You're expected to get to the quarterfinal, maybe a semifinal. That will certainly be the expectation for the U.S. is to have success at the World Cup in 2026. And I'm not saying win the whole thing because that would be remarkable on a number of fronts. But what is your expectation for Burhalter, not just at uh, the Copa America in the next couple summers or the what is what about in the long run? The World Cup in 2026. What would you gauge as success for Greg Burhalter in that tournament? Well, I think you just do have to, have to do well in the Copa America because um, you know if, if if the U.S. were to have a disastrous Copa America and 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 lose all their games and and the the, the programs in crisis, you know, in the build up to the World Cup, there'll be huge pressure from the fans to 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 change Burhalter and so on. So they have to do well in that Copa America. They have to be looking to get really. To uh, certainly the the last eight and, and and ideally the last four, I would imagine, and maybe more. But um, in terms of the World Cup, um, you know this this young generation, this U.S. team isn't bad at all. It's a pretty good team. I think you know um, he's lucky to have such a talented bunch of players around. I've been really impressed by seeing them close up in this Nations League. Some of the individual uh, performances have been. Uh, Excellent. I think uh, some of the English players they've brought in are really helping. I think Balogun, uh, Balogun is going to be a player. That's going to be a really interesting story because I think uh, Gareth Southgate and the English FA may regret allowing him to slip mm-hmm. out of their hands so easily without apparently much resistance at all um, because there's not an obvious number nine coming up as a replacement for Harry Kane when his uh, right. yeah. time comes. So, you know, I think he adds something else to it. It's an exciting squad. I think I think Berhalter has to go into that tournament with 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 a momentum building. Um and and with this generation of players close to hitting their prime, really, in a lot of ways. And uh you know, not they're the weird beasts of work. So it's very hard to say you should achieve this because you don't know what who's gonna be in your group. You right. don't know who get in the knockout stage and it counts for so much you know if in the last 16 you get brazil or if in the last 16 you get switzerland your expectations are going to be completely different Mm -hmm. so you can go out in the last 16 to brazil having played superbly in the group stage and it's a disappointment because you only got that far so i think you know people just need to i think with national teams the attitude people need to have and i certainly have about england is like try to just enjoy the ride because there's so many variables that you can't control in these knockout tournaments and so on. But what I think American fans want to see is a team that's positive and attacks and makes the most of the talent that it has, regardless of the results that come. And I, what I saw this week in Vegas was was pretty much that. You know, it was positive attacking football. And one of the criticisms I've heard about Boerhalter is he's a little bit too cautious and he needs to let the handbrake off. It's very similar to what people say about Gareth Southgate, actually. <laughs> And I would like to see, you know, more of what we saw this week. Um, I would like to see maybe, you know, Greg Berhalter take take the approach that his assistant took in these tournaments and play play a playmaker behind front three and go for it and try and be dominant and be front foot. That would be great. I think that's what American fans want. But uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how it all unfolds. There's always these debates around national teams that get impassioned because 
just that element of patriotism and, and national pride and expectations that comes with it as well. It's the same for every country, and it's no different for the United States these days. Well, if uh, Americans are to enjoy that ride, it will certainly be a ride. It definitely was this this weekend with all that news of Burhalter and then the Nations League. So uh, it'll be a ride, that's for sure. <laughs> definitely. Right, right. Well, Simon, uh, really appreciate you coming on, talking about uh, the U.S. coaching debacle is one way to put it. Uh, I know we're all, generally speaking, rooting for the U.S. to do well in the next couple of years. So really appreciate you coming on, Simon. Thanks so much, Johnny.